Hello and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, play, and stumbling forward through life. I'm Ed Wank, your announcer and co-host for this evening. Thrilled to be here as we record this wonderful experiment in conversation and music recorded live from the Oxford Room of the Aristocrat Pub. Our guest tonight, Evan Dossie, co-founder of Midwest Film Journal. Kenny Phelps, jazz drummer extraordinaire and CEO of Owl Music Group, plus all of these wonderful folks who have filled the Oxford room tonight. Good looking and able to applaud. Now, please welcome your host, the editor of Quill, the magazine of the Society of Professional Journalists, the author of the new book, The Little Book of Misquotations, and a guy who seems to run into either Richard Kind or Dr. Ruth whenever he's wandering around New York City for some strange reason. Please welcome Mr. Lou Harry. Welcome. I've been obsessing a bit lately about partnerships, collaborations, and temporary families. Growing up in a small family, I wanted more siblings. I wanted more cousins and more accessible cousins. Lots of reasons, but among them, I think, is that I never fully trusted my own ideas. I wanted people to bounce them off of. I wanted the bad ones shot down, the good ones encouraged, the ones in the middle to be attached to other ideas and to eventually become something. That could be one of the reasons I don't trust leaders who present as having all the answers. I don't want you to have all the answers. I want you to know where to look for answers. I want you to have people around you who can troubleshoot your ideas, and I want you open to what they find out about your ideas. I'm not a fan of dictators, nationally or locally. <laughs> at magazines where I've worked, at theater productions I've been involved in, with books I've partnered on, much of the pleasure and joy and worthwhile output has come from those collaborations. When they work, there's a synergy where one plus one equals three, or one plus one plus one plus one equals 10. Whatever the math, something happens that generates more than the sum of the parts. Unfortunately, those creative partnerships are often temporary. Playwright Eric Peffinger and I worked on a few novels together, one of which found its way to publication. We collaborated via email, sending the manuscripts back and forth, having no idea where the other writer was going to go with our characters. I miss the feeling I got whenever an email arrived from Eric with his latest editions. I miss the free-flowing idea meetings at Indie Men's Magazine, a publication I built with the late Todd Tobias. Todd and I had similar philosophies about idea meetings. Even bad ideas need to be heard. And we heard some bad ideas. But the comfort level in sharing, in kicking ideas around the table, the laughter, and what we ended up producing gave me a high that I don't think I've experienced again. Next week, I head off to New York, where a play that has my name on it will be read for potential producers. The that play, We Are Still Tornadoes, is an adaptation of a novel I fell in love with by Michael Kuhn and Susan Mullen. They wrote the novel in much the way that Eric and I wrote ours, by passing it back and forth and seeing where the other takes it. In this case, though, I stepped in after the wonderful novel was published because I believed it could work for the stage. But the three of us aren't the only voices involved. The actors who have played these roles in previous readings and workshops have been invaluable to its evolution. So is the director of the upcoming reading, Joel Kirk, whose insightful notes have prompted really useful nips and tucks in the script. 
And I'm sure what the Broadway talent brings to the rehearsals and rereadings in New York will shape it even more. Eventually, though, that makeshift family of creatives will disappear. That's an ache of the creative process that isn't often discussed. What's it like for a band to play intimately together on stage for one night, or in a studio for a week, or as a group for years and then for members to go their separate ways? What happens on a movie set when the final shot is in the can? What's it like for a radio partnership of decades to be split up? What do you cling to? What do you let go? How do you get past the notion of an end in order to best experience the now? Yeah, that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately. And it's on my mind as we sit here with not only a group of guests who will probably never be in the same room together again, but also with an audience that, like most audiences, isn't a faceless mass, but a unique collection of unique individuals coming together to become something more than their sum. I'm glad the lights are always on here in the Oxford Room of the Aristocrat because our audience members fuel what we do up here. We are here now, and I'm so glad about that, and I'm so glad that we'll be talking about creative experiences, both from a creator's point of view, but also from a viewer's point of view. In a bit, we're gonna talk with drummer Kenny Phelps and both hear and make some music. We're gonna chat with Evan Dossie about our experiences at the movies. And now I'm gonna welcome my dear friend, Ed Wank, my co-host for this episode. Thank you, dude. Ed and I go back a little ways. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, we did not know each other uh, back when we might have run into each other on the East Coast. That is a fact. We were both working at the same time professionally as stand-up comics. I was on the road from 87 to like 92. And I worked from about <clears throat> mid-80s to mid-90s, so about okay. that same period. And we you, were working a lot of the same rooms, too. Right. Philadelphia, so, New York City, and uh, Baltimore, upstate New York, Baltimore, upstate New York. Baltimore yeah. touring around. How did you, and since then, uh, Ed became, went into radio, mm -hmm. and I was a frequent contributor, guest, yeah. oh, something. I would say all of the above, sure. Of, on his show Absolutely. for various reasons. Yeah. Then when I went to Indie Men's Magazine as an editor, he became one of my key writers there. We collaborated on a couple of books together. And now, here we are. You are in an area that I know absolutely nothing about. The kind of high tech electronics. Yeah, tell tell right. these folks about where you are now. Okay, where I am now is at uh, a technology trade association called CEDIA, which is uh, stands for Custom Electronic Design and Integration Association. Everyone say that. Yeah, three times fast. <laughs> so our guys used to be known as the AV guys, the guys who inst install custom like high end theaters and whatnot. And now it's it's expanded to all of smart home. So our guys install smart home systems. A lot of them ins install smart home systems for very, very high-end clients. For and, example? Oh, well, we have some of our guys are installing theaters in the homes of people like Peter Jackson, the director you might have heard of, made a couple of Lord of the Rings movies. There were little, <laughs> some little films like that. I would imagine his home... It, I, he probably it's doesn't a, have antennas on his TV. So it's a that. million pounds. It's the, the this not, particular. We're not talking about British money. I'm talking about <laughs> I'm talking about British money. I mean, oh, he oh, moved oh. to to London to build this theater and right. own this home. And in London now, you have to dig because you can't build up. So in order for this theater to be properly reference quality and give you the sound pressure levels that you need, he had to dig into the street down below the house that he had purchased and then sound isolate the thing, which involves building multiple walls inside of walls inside of walls and then adding rubber bushings and all of this other stuff. When I want sound isolation, I usually just go to the restroom. <laughs> 
<laughs> the best I can come up with. We need Kenny here for a rim shot. That was great. <laughs> that was spectacular. But oh. no, that's what, and I do all the content for them now, the writing and, and it's my job not just to write for the membership, but it's my job now to explain all this high tech stuff to people who are actually building houses for people. And you so, have a podcast. And I have a podcast too, yes. And that is? It's the podcast. Cedia Podcast, which you can find on Spotify and iTunes and everywhere you get your podcasts. If you're interested in this stuff, some of it is and some of it is accessible. Okay. So. Um, I was talking about collaboration. Sure. Your radio partnership, mm -hmm. uh, part of the Wank and O'Brien team, went for quite a while. Talk about well, the beginning of that. Okay. So there were several partnerships that I was with, uh, the first being the Wank and Biddle Show in central Pennsylvania, which gave rise to the terrible tagline, don't forget to wank and biddle every morning. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. I didn't write kind it. Kind of inevitable. <laughs> But I worked with this guy, Steve Biddle, for three years, and then I wound up bouncing around a little bit. Long story short, I wound up in Indianapolis in 1996. And uh, as luck would have it, I got paired with a guy named Dave O'Brien on X103. And you, by paired, when these radio relationships happen, how much of it do you know beforehand? Very little. Okay. Um, he was brought in as kind of the news guy to replace another person, and then a, a previous co-host by the name of Vanessa Wild left, and it became the Wank and O'Brien show, and that seemed to click. And from that point forward, Dave and I uh, had a radio show in various formats in Indianapolis for about 12, 13, 15 years. Okay. And what are, did you get any sense of what the matchmakers are thinking when they put a partnership? They like were that absolutely together? thinking nothing. They were, <laughs> they were literally trying to fill two seats that needed to be filled at the okay. time. And we had the ability to speak and communicate w with one another and with the audience in a manner that made some sense. And it was the, the days of alternative radio. I don't know if you guys remember radio in the late nineties, but it was, was the Wild West. This was before <laughs> this was before we had, you know, nipples being exposed at 600 feet that caused the FCC chairman to lose his mind. <laughs> and you could do anything you wanted to on the radio really close to Carlin's seven words. I mean, we were mm -hmm. da tap dance right up to the line and then walk it back a little bit. But for the the late 90s and X103, we, we, were, we were doing doing very well. And we were doing, and I'll clue you guys into a little bit of radio inside baseball if you're interested. We were put on the air, and they realized they had something good on their hands. They realized they had something better on their hands when the competition across the street brought Howard Stern to town. So it was our job to be what's known as a flanking show. And what <laughs> we did was we carved up the 18 to 34-year-old crowd to keep them from intruding on the Bob and Tom ratings. So our job was to beat Howard but not beat Bob and Tom because we were in the same building and owned, owned by the same people, um, which we did effectively, which led to a gig then in the Bay Area for a year and then back with MS Communications for several runs. Okay, where you were put against the people you were Yes, precisely, with. exactly. So we were across the street from the people that we used to work for. Okay. Right, you got it. How, how does that... How did the relationship, your on-air relationship evolve? I mean, what was different if we heard the first week of episodes to then you wow. know, 10 years later? So the show adjusted formatically, um, which was fortunate, actually, because as we got a little older, um, we didn't want to be quite as wild as we had been before. Right. So when we went into the pop universe, it was our job to entertain moms who were taking their kids to school who wanted to hear radio now. Mm -hmm. And then when we wound up being assigned, we didn't choose it, but we were assigned to a country format for a while. Not that there's anything wrong with country music. 
except there is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> top three country. Wait, wait, get your respectability back. Okay. Three great country artists. Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash. <laughs> we could throw in some Merle Haggard now and then. Okay. That's, that's fine. All anyway. Right. So, so the question was, I'm sorry. Okies from Muskogee aside. Right, 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 right. What, um, so what, what did it end up becoming, and how much does the format sort of affect the personalities? The format affects the personalities in that you topically, oh, okay, so if you're doing a morning show, and it's a music-based morning show, you're generally going to draw from life experiences, right? You're going to talk about your kids. You're going to talk about your day. You're going to talk about real things. And there was a consultant that I worked with, who, and I don't want to, you know, Mm-hmm. Radio consultants are there, and they oh, exist, say and they're it's kind called of get real. They're say terrible. <laughs> um, but this particular individual was not terrible. He was actually a very smart guy who had done this before, and we developed. I actually helped Dave and I helped him develop an acronym, which was called Fair, and this was the acronym that expressed the necessary things that would go into a funny Good Morning Show: funny, authentic, mm-hmm. innovative, and real. Right. So you're not you're playing, welcome. you're playing a, let me see if this makes sense. It's, because it's I know what where I you're going about, and you are making sense. Okay. It's what I thought about with stand-up comedy. There are right. some people who play right. a character, but most comics play, put a frame around a part of their personality. Right. They're not reflecting their entire personality. That I give you Seinfeld vague. and then by extension, I give you Curb, curb Your Enthusiasm. Right. As, so it's a part of your right. personality. So you're being authentic but you're not necessarily trying to be you're, show every aspect of yourself. It's you, but it's the it's the state fair caricature of you sometimes. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow, state fair caricature any state fair caricaturists out there. We don't <laughs> want to offend I'm going to offend every profession before we're done here. No matter what. So yeah, so as far as the collaboration went, I guess the next question would be about the creative process, or am I yeah, I'm curious about that. Go ahead. You can, yeah, okay. you've done this before, so okay. you can ask yourself so, questions, and I'll just sit <laughs> so back and have a. I'm going to interview line. myself for a while. Thanks, Lou. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the division of labor was thus. I mean, you figure out really quick when you do a, a morning show that if you sit down and you construct a pre-recorded bit that you take four hours constructing and it's two minutes long, you still got a four-hour show to do <laughs> the next day, and there you've done one segment. Congratulations. Right. Right. So we rapidly evolved into figuring out ways that we could involve the audience, get callers on the air, find things that were entertaining. We had certain go-to things, and we discovered a couple tricks tricks really rapidly. And one of the uh, shows that does this really, really well, you guys seem like an NPR kind of crowd, so (laughs) I'm guessing you've all heard, wait, wait, don't tell me. Okay, all right, precisely. And that's a show that does it right, because nobody ever, if you listen carefully, really nobody ever loses on that show, right? Mm-hmm. You're always going to win the prize because they're going to help you if you start right. failing. And that was <laughs> one of the key things that we learned how to do early on. Mm. And that was always part of our creative process. How can we create a ridiculous gimmick of a game to just have fun with a listener? Right. So that was a big part of what we did. Right. And we do, they call them phoners, and we would edit a lot of these answers together. If we had a big windstorm, a great question was, what did you find in your yard? You know, was it the neighbor's trampoline or somebody's kiddie pool or whatever? And the weirder it got, the better the content got. And that's the kind of stuff we always try to develop, to be as topical as possible and to be as local as possible. And we had that luxury, unlike a show like Bob and Tom, which is nationally syndicated, and they can no longer do that local kind of material. Right. Talk about dealing with callers yeah. you know, who may, and so taping a lot of that in advance mm-hmm. and doing yeah. some editing. 
not always easy when you have a celebrity guest or have somebody on. Truth. You're no longer doing that part of the business. Tell us about interviews that have gone bad and what you do in a situation where an interview is not working. <laughs> you, you tread water, man. <laughs> I mean, no, I'll talk, um, just to, to set this up so we, you know, yeah, you yeah, can name ahead. names. One of the oh, first, I'll name names. No, <laughs> one of the first interviews I ever did for a magazine was just when Harry Connick Jr. broke. You know, when, when Harry Met Sally came out or whatever. Yeah, that was uh -huh. the movie. Um, and the soundtrack was out and he was like 18 years old and suddenly everyone's doing these The Next Sinatra covers. And I had to do an interview with him because he was going to play Atlantic City and did a phoner with him. And his response to every question was, yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, the guy did not want to talk. Yep. And it was a nightmare. And he ended up you know, turning it into like right. a two-paragraph well, uh, entertainment preview. But... I'm sure he's gotten better at this, but I'm sure you've, but I could do that because I was interviewing by phone for right. a magazine. It's a little different when you have somebody on the air. But the fortunate thing about doing a music format is you can always go to a song. <laughs> Seriously, man, you can always go to a song. If you're doing a talk show, you are hung out to dry, man. Yeah. You got to move along in a hurry or you got to fill in the gaps. And you, the, the one thing I learned was to have way more questions than you ever needed. Right. And that was always how you prepped. And I ran into a couple of problems. David Allen Greer, mm -hmm. I, uh, funny man who I, I really respected the minute he found out he was on a country radio station when we were interviewing him he got pissed mm -hmm. and he didn't want to talk to us anymore and he clammed up and he was not speaking to us and I was like damn this sucks this is terrible but I learned some tricks along the way to like kind of root people out um is a great example uh at spike lee on one time and we started talking about basketball out of the mm -hmm. gate and he immediately like relaxed mm -hmm. because he, we i was asking about reggie miller right. and then o'brien said hey man you got ripped off when do the right thing didn't get an academy award uh -huh. and then he was completely comfortable and then but, he was like okay these guys are not jerks they're right. going they're not going to play the game my equivalent story okay so on the foot notoriously terrible interview guy jerry lewis yeah. I'm yeah. doing a phoner with Jerry Lewis, who's touring in awful, Damn Yankees, just and I awful. know I'm going to have to call him. They tell me I'm going to get five minutes, and I'm like, holy, you know, what's this going to be like? <laughs> I get Jerry Lewis on the phone, and I just figured, what the heck, let's go for it. Uh -huh. I said, all right, before we talk about the stuff we're supposed to talk about, in the movie Which Way to the Front, you put the credit sequence like a half hour into the movie. <laughs> Talk to me about that. And he was like, oh, really? And he went off for 10 minutes talking about his thinking about that movie. Why he did that? Why he did this? We ended up talking for a half an hour. He said, you're going to come up to Detroit? Can you come up to Detroit this weekend? I'd... We had this half hour great conversation with Jerry Lewis. Um, it, so it's finding when you can. Henry Rollins. Henry go, Rollins. Go. Hammer and Hank Hollins. When he, st when he started doing his uh, spoken word stuff, he was notoriously cranky with radio interviewers. Uh -huh. And we found out that we both had a mutual aff affection for the band Thin Lizzy. <laughs> and I brought that up basically out of the gate. And he was good to go for really? the rest of the interview. He was like, cool, man. Right. Yeah, let's talk. And we, we forget sometimes the other side of it. I mean, I had... Right. <laughs> I, okay, okay go, let me go a little back. No, I'm going to go first, then you're going to go. All right, all right. I want to set this up for you. Years these ago, folks. okay. I, I did, wrote a book. One of the first books I wrote was a work for hire project where a publisher approached me about something, and I did a book called The Voodoo Kit. Oh. This was a book, a humor book attached to a voodoo doll. It, it was came with a voodoo brilliant. doll. It was right. brilliant. I got a flat fee. It sold three quarters of a million copies. Because I'm not that's kidding. That's the way this works. Because that's the way it works. But. So, th so they wanted the love voodoo kit. They wanted the second one, and I got only a slightly better deal on it. But this time, they wanted to throw marketing money behind it. 
I had over 200 radio interviews for the Love Voodoo oh. kit. Oh. So some days I was doing five interviews in a morning with five different morning shows. Yeah. That messes with your head. It does. And so being on the other side of it kind of got me to appreciate the sort of mill that some of these people were involved in. And I mean, that happens in Hollywood where you see these local interviews with, you know, with Tom Hanks or with somebody who's in, they basically have him in a room. Right. And they're bringing in people for a five-minute interview and then out and another person. Mm -hmm. By the time you do the third one, you have no idea which, what you already said. You know, did I, did I already give this answer to this person? Or did I, you know, am I saying the same thing I said two seconds ago? It's, and then we had one awful DJ who said to me, uh, right before, no, producer, right before I went on the air, after I've done like four of these in a day, yeah. said, hey, we, I just want to, look, we just changed the format a little bit. So what we do is we have this gong and we, um, so <laughs> as soon as you're not funny, we hit the gong and you're off the air. Okay, ready? Uh, um, I'm like, I'm talking about, okay. You know, just... Premier Radio Networks would set up folks in a room. Um, did I interrupt you? I'm no, sorry. please. please. Um, no, and I was just going to say, sometimes you go from like the NPR interview, yes. and then the next minute you're in Wacky Morning Un Team. Unbelievable. And you're shifting gears. Anyway, go ahead. Premier Radio Networks would set up these, these press junkets with folks uh, who were appearing in movies or television shows, actors and so on. And they would literally have, you'd have a 10-minute chunk of time, and you saw the rest of their schedule. And they'd be, like, talking to Oregon before you, and then, you know, Seattle after you or whatever. Um, but there were two hours of 10-minute chunks that these poor folks had to sit through. And, yeah, you felt for them. And, in fact, we heard one uh, interview crash and burn completely. The, 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 the late Chris Farley was with um, a co-star in a movie of his who was some supermodel. And the guy who was running the, sh running the interview immediately before us uh, was a self-styled Stern-like shock jock. And his question to Farley was, who do you think is going to have the heart attack first, Chris? You were the supermodel. Oh. And Farley grabbed his headphones, slammed them <laughs> on the table, and left the junket for the day. Thereby screwing every other jock down the line out of the interview that they had had booked for that day. But people were furious at the guy. But this is the kind of crap that folks have to deal with when they're out there. So I understand. I, I try to understand when a celebrity or a you know a person who's in that spotlight gets a little testy. Right. And and you'll see quotes. You know, I, I ask you as somebody sort of to be a critical reader of celebrity press. When you see a quote from a celebrity about a topic and your knee-jerk reaction is, well, who the hell cares what they think about that? Sometimes it's just that they were asked the question. Right. They didn't necessarily, and it's one thing for a famous person or whoever to, to put out a press release right. about something that has happened mm -hmm. and to make a statement. But very often, they're just responding to a question that's been asked of them. So a little tolerance. Who's your favorite interview of all time? Uh, a well that you would go back to. Pete Seeger. Really? Pete Seeger. I spent an hour on the phone, hour and a half on the phone with Pete Seeger in a story that never ran. Oh. There was a magazine called POV out of, yeah. out of Boston, National Magazine. Uh, and they used to do a thing like, uh, it was either like when I was 20 or something like that. And so I was doing an as told to piece uh, with Pete Seeger and spent a wonderful hour and a half on him. Then I... Because it wasn't as told to, now journalists usually don't do this for most stories. We don't show the story to the subject. But since it was going to be from his, in his voice, sent it to him so that he could mark it up and have this wonderful edited version 
of of his uh, thing that was sent to me. The other one I loved was uh, Carl Malden, really actor who was in his nineties when I interviewed him. Uh, Indiana native from up in Gary, right streets of San Francisco, and you know was in uh, Streetcar Named Desire with uh, uh, a guy named Marlon Brando oh, and uh, Kim Hunter. I also interviewed Kim Hunter, so I had half the oh, cast wow. of Streetcar Named oh, Desire awesome. covered. Uh, it was another wonderful. That was a live interview thing, and we showed clips from movies. And oh, things cool! Like that. Those are my favorite. I think probably your favorite. This I, as good as this is as what you know as fabulous as this is going right now. Uh huh. I'm guessing this is not as much fun for you as being interviewed by Martin Short. That was unbelievably spectacular. <laughs> that was a highlight of my career. Well, yeah. circumstance. Okay. So Lou Harry called well, this guy. To, knew, Lou Harry called me up one day, <laughs> and and asked me if I was available to be this local celebrity to appear on stage with Martin Short while he was in character as Jiminy Glick, and I said. <laughs> Why the hell not? What have I got? What have I got to lose? It's Martin Short. He's going to carry me. There's no way I can suck, right? So this is going to be awesome. So um, <laughs> I got the, I got to the Palladium, which is where it was, is a few years back, and I ran into Dave O'Brien in the lobby, right. and he goes, "When did you guys rehearse?" And I said, "We didn't." And he turned white as a sheet, and he was like, "You're going in cold." I'm like, "Dude, it's Martin Short. What's to worry?" <laughs> Everybody was panicked about this, but me, because <laughs> for whatever reason, I was strangely calm because it was Martin Short. And if you don't know the Jiminy Glick character, because for some it's been a little while, how would you, you start very, very high and then you go very, very low? <laughs> he's like, he's a really, he's, he, he puts a on this syncophantic. Yeah, and he does this terrible, um, like, like celebrity interview guy. Celebrity interview guy that, that like panders to the subject and what. If you get a chance to get any of this on YouTube, take a look because it's really, really funny. Um, we got up there and. For some reason, because he's great, and because I was just competent enough to get a couple laughs, mm. it started working. And then he's got this big fat suit on, and in the middle of it, he fell on me. <laughs> and knocked me out of my chair, and I went through this big, like, Lucille Ball exaggeration of trying to get him to his feet, and the crowd is howling, and I thought to myself, you're doing physical comedy with Martin Short right now, and it's freaking working. Never forget this moment. <laughs> and I haven't. It was like the best thing ever. But yeah, that was definitely a highlight. Yeah. yeah. We'll go from that highlight. Let's bring on our first guest. Shall we do that? Hey. Um, a number of years ago... Um, a group called the Indiana Film Journalists Association was formed. We're going to talk a little bit about the how and why of that. Uh, but also a couple years back, Midwest Film Journal was created, which is a website uh, that goes beyond just sort of doing the standard issue movie reviews. So we thought in this window of time around Oscar land and end of year and all of that, uh, that we would have Evan Dossi on uh, the co-founder of Midwest Film Journal, and we can do some movie talk. Welcome. Hey, thanks Welcome. for having me on. First, I mean, why, why Midwest Film Journal? Why, I mean, people have access now to film reviews. They could get the New York Times, the LA Times, a thousand movie reviews, Rotten Tomatoes. Why, why Midwest Film Journal? Sure, so, I mean, uh, goes back a little ways. Um, Midwest Film Journal is the, uh, is the site started by myself, my wife, uh, fellow film journalist from the IFJA, Nick Rogers, um, and former Nouveau film critic Sam Watermeyer. 
Um, Sam and I have actually, speaking of the uh, theme of for tonight, Sam and I have collaboratively, collaboratively written uh, film journalism since we were in junior high school <laughs> at Clay Junior High. So we have been uh, in a long-form creative partnership for a long time. Midwest Film Journalist is sort of the culmination of that. We wrote together at several other sites. But um, we're both sort of uh, new journalism so we, we grew up reading film reviews, not necessarily, I mean, we read Roger Ebert, we read Pauline Kael's archived work. Um, we still read A.O. Scott and all of the big people from the LA Times and New York, New York Times, um, Chicago back when it was uh, in its post-Ebert phase. But, um, you know, we grew up on a lot of the uh, internet film critics, uh, like Walter Chaw, David Ehrlich with IndieWire, um, Birth Movies Death, um, which used to be called Badass Digest. Shockingly amazing film criticism for that name. Um, but, you know, in the past decade, it's moved to YouTube film criticism, podcast film criticism, a lot of uh, film commentary that is just people sitting around talking, which is, can be great. Obviously, I mean, we're here. But, but... Um, right, we, but a lot of it is... It's, a lot of it feels like people who like movies talking about how much they like movies and here's a movie we liked and here's a movie we didn't like. Yeah, so so we were we wanted to recapture the feeling of going to a going to a home for uh, well-written, well-thought-out essays about about film, about film history, and then it evolved into into something else, which is that we now have a large group of writers, a lot of whom don't have places where they get bylines normally, maybe don't even write film criticism regularly, maybe write uh, you know, we have writers of plays um, some writers of fiction. We actually have some friends who have simply written thousands and thousands of pages of fan fiction <laughs> since they've been teenagers. They're all now in their 30s, which you don't think about, but that's, I mean, that's... It's writing. It's that's putting writing. words together. It is putting words together. You're just not getting paid for it. And uh, we have these large collaborative projects um, where we pick a theme, pick a genre. Uh, we're doing a Vin Diesel series in a week <laughs> where everyone's taking a Vin Diesel movie. And we try to, we try to get to the truth of an actor or a or a genre or a, a series through the eyes of multiple writers. I just think it's more interesting than, you know, going for one writer whose perspective you might know for 20 years. But right. So you'll yeah. sometimes have more than one writer on a given topic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Different writers. Sometimes we have different writers on the same movie, um, and we try to let the essays clash together so that you can kind of get more of a perspective after you, you know, you go out to see what people think of a, right. any given release. We've gotten to a point, and I've, I've railed against this with a lot of arts criticism, um, the sort of schoolteacher approach to arts criticism, which is I'm going to give this a grade. I am the, I'm the person who knows I'm going to watch this movie, and now I'm giving it a C plus or a thumbs up, thumbs down. I mean, as much as we like a lot of the writing and we praise Roger Ebert and folks like that, I, I worry that, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down has sort of become a toxic thing, I think, in, in film criticism. We've, we've talked about this before where when I was doing more full-time arts writing, sometimes I'd get a, a comment on a story that I wrote. Maybe mm -hmm. it was not the most positive review in the world. And somebody would say, well, I happen to like it. How, what do you think of that? I think that was the greatest play I ever saw. Right. And, you know, so there. And my reaction is usually, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you found more in it than that. There's the belief that if you have stated an opinion that you somehow expect everyone to believe, to agree with you. I'll tell you what, one of the fun things about being a film critic online, uh, having a Rotten Tomatoes byline, um, having, being full access, seeing movies early sometimes, 
uh, especially with the superhero movies, people get really passionate. Uh, last year, <laughs> including Martin of, Scorsese. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Last year, one of my reviews. It was a you know we. Uh, just to back up real quick, we don't have star ratings on our site. Our site is entirely based on the essays. Absolutely. Don't want to make it easy for people to go in and say, oh, they didn't like it. You know? mm-hmm. So I wrote a review that was critical, but not you know negative about a superhero movie last year. And some forum in Colombia, <laughs> just, just Colombian superhero film fans disagreed with my assessment. <laughs> and I started getting these messages from people on my email address, which is available on the site, uh, midwestfilmjournal at gmail.com. I mean, it's not fancy. Um, and getting them on my personal Facebook in Spanish, which I unfortunately can't read. Um, just like the angriest messages for, for a good week. And then, you know, then it, you know, petered down. But it was, uh, you know, every time I was just like, well, I'm glad you liked the movie. I, I mean, you know, I don't know you, but it's... Yeah, at some point, you know, you, it's sort of respect the passion. And, I, yeah. I always thought that David Lindquist, who writes for The Star, had a great approach to music criticism, especially live music criticism, he would say, did this artist deliver what the intended audience expected? So it was never, uh, is Britney Spears terrible or awesome? Right. It was, did she deliver to her fans that were there that night? And that's what it, no. that's one of the advantages of a good music critic True. is that they understand that the audience for that concert Right. 95% of the people are going to be people predisposed to like that. Right. It's a little dip when it comes to movies, when it comes to theater. You know, if a play is coming to the Indiana Repertory Theater, that's going to get a range of people, right. not necessarily all people who like that. They're not going because automatically because of that play. They're right. part of a subscription or whatever. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, music critics, and, and it's something I've always had trouble writing. Music criticism? Music criticism more than anything else. Really? Because if it's not an area that I feel comfortable having something to ah. say about it, okay. then I'm just reporting what songs were played. Okay. And it doesn't, you know, who wants to read that? Mm-hmm. Some people maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, how, in terms yeah. of assigning um, work to a, a critic, if you know somebody is not a fan of war movies or not a fan of science fiction epics mm. do you avoid assigning that writer or do you embrace that yeah well one of the benefits of having a team and of course you're part of the team now as well you have been for, for a long time and we have another writer mitch ringenberg is that generally we're able to assign you know we we have a spreadsheet and people choose what they want to mm. review so we can have lou harry's review of cats <laughs> you want to read I, that one? I, I can, do want to read it, that it one. It is fantastic. I can honestly say I would have nothing to write about cats. <laughs> but when you have Lou involved, you know you're going to get a review of perspective and insight into the film and into the actual production. And, <coughs> and, and Sorry, as, furball. <laughs> as, as Lewis said before, <laughs> I, I, I think you, you described adequately the experience of seeing cats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, and, Do tell. No, yeah. okay. so, no it, it, but that is a challenge because there yeah. are other people, other critics. If you're the one critic who covers music in a town, okay. if you're the one critic who covers film, if you're one critic who covers theater in a small town, you're expected to cover everything in that, yeah. in that category. It's nice to be able to have an outlet where different writers can chime in on different projects. Yeah, having a team, I mean, it, it also brings out the best criticism because, I mean, there are things that I just could not review. And, right. and you know, perspective-wise, my wife is is much more 
into uh, films from the golden era of Hollywood than I am. She's much more well-versed in those. Um, she's even, I mean, her review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so much more insightful than mine could have ever been. Right. I mean, I like the movie more than you, I know, from our right. IFJA meeting. We'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But um, when you were great. editing, you were, Ed, you were an editor at Nouveau News Weekly. Yeah. How much were you comfortable? Edited Sam there, too. Oh, there you go. Yeah. How much were you comfortable with a critic and readers are all over the place on this, bringing their own self into it. It used to be that you never oh, used the word I boy. in a review, that you oh. didn't, you sort of took that sort of distance, third person approach to, but more and more writers are included in the I. We didn't have that much of a problem with that, an issue with that. Sam was upfront about his biases mm -hmm. when he yeah. was doing criticism for us, when he'd review movies for us. Ed Johnson Ott, yeah was oh, yeah. terrific An amazing was movie. fantastic and i mean having ed there reviewing um reviewing yeah. movies was was a, yeah. just a treat if ed wanted oh, yeah. to review something in sanskrit i would say and, go for it <laughs> and don't forget i was the managing editor so i had people like cat copeland who was really good at assigning finding and figuring out who should see what musical right. show in town here's what i think we're going to do there was a we've talked a lot about um there's a lot of talk about movies and what's out there. I'm going to open it up to audience members. Shout out a, a 2019 movie, and we're all going to chime in and uh, and oh see boy. what we want to chat about, what we want to talk about it, what our thoughts are. How's that? Yeah. Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah, that movie's fantastic. We actually, with the IFJA, we, um, man, we, we, uh, we got to the point at the end of the year, the it was almost a finalist. It should have been. That's how I felt about it. But yeah, it's yeah. It, that's the kind of film where you get a unique vision, where you're seeing a film that you haven't seen before, but not in a, you know, sometimes you put that label on a film that is, you know, uncomfortable. That this is a, um, a film that you've never seen before in this style, but it worked. It wasn't off-putting in that way. Uh, did you see the film? Haven't seen it. Haven't seen the film. One of the most beautiful. Th experiences uh, of running our own site and obviously being part of the IFJA, which means we get to, we get to invite to screenings and sometimes we just get uh, movies sent to us or links sent to us, movies that have gone under the radar completely. Last Black Man in San Francisco is one that just completely went under the radar last year. It only opened here for a few weeks, if, if at all, I don't even recall. Huh. Um, and it was just in a, in a, I think we had a link, I had a link and I was looking for something to watch that night. Yeah. Yeah, and I happened upon the it. The screener was yeah. in the pile, and it was like, oh, I'm going to watch this, but first I'm going to watch this. Can I ask you guys a question real sure. quick? Can I interrupt? Because I know it just occurred to me. You guys get a lot of screeners, and yeah. if you don't know what that is, it's a DVD that you see at home. DVD or a link these okay, days. Okay, yeah. or a link. All right. All right. Yeah. How, how different is that from, I mean, does that yeah. affect your, your review, seeing a screener or seeing it like on a small screen or whatever, versus going into a theater and seeing it? Right on a big screen with the proper sound and two words with that community experience as well. Two words, the Irishman. Okay. <laughs> I was lucky enough to see the Irishman in a movie theater before reading almost anything. I mean, I knew who was in it. I knew right. basically what it was about seeing that in a movie theater and people talk about, Oh, it's three and a half hours, it's three and a half hours. Let me vent about that for a second. Okay. <laughs> People who watch, who binge watch 47 hours of a TV series are <laughs> bitching about a three and a half hour movie. <sighs> I've been to 50. <laughs> it's the appropriate reaction. Seriously. It is the appropriate reaction. I've been to 50 minute 
fringe theater shows that felt longer than the <laughs> Irish one. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made. I don't think it's going to win the Oscar. I think it's a very solid, good movie. Right. And part of the problem of December and January in movie watching is we feel like if it's not the greatest movie, oh my God, it's what I, what's going to win the Oscar. It's got to yeah. win awards. It's this. We feel like that's some kind of lesser thing. It's okay to be a good movie. That's enough sometimes. You know? Certainly. So anyway, that's my rant about the Irish. Awesome rant. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a, my answer for that is that I, I have set up a space for myself in my office with a 32-inch TV right and sound-canceling headphones since we have a 10-month-old in our house. Okay. Yeah. But uh, my wife and I often watch movies together, you know, since she's, she's equally a film journalist. So, I, you know, it's the same person I turn to when I'm watching mm. a movie in, right. in the theaters as if I watch it at home. So it's not much different. But, but actually, Last Black Man in San Francisco is a great example where, you know, sometimes we'll turn on a movie that we get a screener of, and it's just okay. It's right. not something that's very great. And it wouldn't be great in the theater either. You'd just right. be sitting yeah. there wondering, okay, well, when right. is this going get, to get started? But if it's a movie that's that unique or interesting, it just, I mean, it grabs you the same way as okay. long as, you know, yeah. my Fair son enough. doesn't wake up and yeah. come running in. Which sure. I'm know. kind of on the opposite end where I, when you talk about great movies and should you see them at home or in a screen, mm. I don't want to see a mediocre movie in the movie theater. Okay. I'd much, I'm much more comfortable seeing a mediocre movie <laughs> at home because I know I can leave comfortably and it I haven't devoted my yeah, evening right, to yeah. it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's where I'm in terms that's, of sight. Another movie, yell one out. Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. My sphincter tightened just thinking about that movie. That, uh, if they gave award, they should. I mean, there are Oscar categories that should happen. Most disappointing movie should be an award. Star Wars. Um, no, not, I wouldn't put Star Wars, that's just weak. There are other ones I would put above it. Uncut Gems was one of the most pleasurably tense movies I've seen awesome. in a long time. Okay. It reminded me of, if you've ever read any of the old Jim Thompson or David Goodis yeah, thrillers from like the 50s, um, those kind of pulp books where they're not mysteries, they're not criminal procedure books, they're books about people who are already a mess making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and standing in a hole and digging it deeper. Mm -hmm. That's what Uncut Gems is. It's the most yelly movie of the year, I think. <laughs> There's a load of yelling in this movie. It's unpleasant. I totally understand somebody not liking Uncut Gems, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Was Adam Sandler good? Oh, yeah, he was very good. Adam, Adam Sandler was robbed an Oscar nomination for that movie. I don't believe <laughs> I, I, was ever, I would ever hear that you know, phrase uttered you know, ever. That happy Gilmore good. Hey, shut up. Hey, <laughs> no, but he now has, I mean, he now has this sort of um, edgy, cool film. Right. Wedding Singer, I'll Stand Behind, is a terrific rom-com. Okay. Yeah. And on the other end, Maybe the only person in America is going to defend Waterboy, but oh, I laugh. I'm there with you. I will tell you one of the joys of Uncut Gems is following Sandler and and Kathy Bates on Twitter <laughs> right. and watching them revisit the Waterboy via oh, Oscar yeah. chat and, with and, one and, another. How many of you have seen Uncut Gems? No, okay, just my <laughs> wife in the back. Um, I, then I won't spoil it. It has one of the greatest cameos I've ever seen in my life in a movie. And it lasts about 12 seconds. Better than defending your life? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. It just has a great, what? 
moment okay. in the middle of it that I'll leave it to you to I discover. Think there, mm, that, I think <laughs> oh, there you go. Maybe the only movie this year where I actively saw multiple parties walking out of the theater. <laughs> the little, really? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was a... Our, our screening was a critics and um, truly it was a oh, Heart, Heartland, Heartland film. film. No, Heartland this is film. not a Heartland truly yeah. moving picture. It was. Folks. It, I would not. No. I, I was. I was. Oh man. Well, according yeah. to Lewis, moving in another sense. Yeah. 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 It's. Uh, it was not. Maybe not the uh, proper audience for right. an early screening of Uncut Gems, but. But that audience loved yeah. Irishman, so you never know. It's that's a great knows. and diverse but, audience too. And I let's don't do a side note on the Heartland Film Festival, which has be transformed, I mean, a terrific thing here in Indianapolis from the beginning. But you also had roller skating monkey movies in it. You know, a lot of movies, in other words, and I, I use the term roller skating monkey movies to refer to movies that are nice and have sort of positive intention, but suck. <laughs> <laughs> and there were always some of those mixed into the Heartland lineup. Heartland now has, I mean, you look at the lineup of films they had this year, uh, and the number of their oh, yeah. films that are Oscar contenders, it's pretty staggering and really cool. So pay attention to what Heartland Film Festival Oh, and actually, um, speaking of how uh, Greg Sorovig and his team at Heartland Film Festival are expanding the film festival's yeah. uh, repertoire, uh, Midwest Film Journal is helping them run Heartland Horror next year, which is the, the sort of midnight movie-style uh, programming block. Right. You would um, never have seen horror films at Heartland no. 15 years ago. No, and it was a it's a big thing we're hoping to we're hoping we get a lot of cool submissions for mm. independent horror film. Very cool. Other it. other movies. Knives out. 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 You take it first. <laughs> well, this is one that Lou and I disagree on. I loved Knives Out. I thought Knives Out was excellent. Yeah, we um that was one I was looking forward to for quite a while because I I'm a, been a fan of Ryan Johnson for a decade now. He's pretty much never let me down. And obviously the cast is just incredible. And I was impressed by the way in which it went from a whodunit to basically like a, a, like a politically relevant social. social drama and then wrapped itself up as a whodunit. And it was just immensely satisfying to me. I know Lou disagrees slightly. Yeah, I was, it kind of washed over me. I was, I was not, first of all, talk about biases and it's good to show some biases. I am an idiot <laughs> when it comes to mysteries. Oh, okay. I cannot read a mystery because I can't keep track of who's who and who said what to who and who left what clue where. I can't, I love board games. I'm a board game addict. We'll talk about that in another show at some point. I can't, I'm lousy at social deduction games where I have to figure out who in the group is the traitor or who's lying or who's, I can't figure it out. So, what am I relying on? So mystery is, there's always a missing piece, usually. Um, and in this case, I was like, oh, this is fine. This is okay. This is a good enough. I, but I, I felt like I was watching a machine operate with a talented cast. Hmm. So I didn't, I mean, I didn't dislike it. I didn't turn it off. It wasn't, but to me, it's the kind of film that is sort of off the, not necessarily one that's in that awards category and maybe if I saw it in March and wasn't thinking about awards, my you know that wouldn't have played in as much. I might have enjoyed it a little more. Um, it was fun and fine, and I was done with it when it was over. It didn't stick. I think we gave that best ensemble at the IFJA this year, didn't we? Right, and I mm. argued against it, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 little women, ladies and gentlemen, little women. That's fair. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you see Knives Out, Ed? I haven't seen it yet. Oh. Uh oh, what's that? 
what is your opinion of the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh. Here we go. <laughs> Glad you asked. Ed? No, you go ahead. No, you, Ed. I, 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 mean, Ed, I would, no. I would say that you should go first on this one. This, um, oh, boy. Um... Let me say that it's not the worst thing I've seen Quentin Tarantino do. What's the worst thing you've seen Quentin Tarantino do? I was at opening night of Wait Until Dark on Broadway when he decided he was going to be a Broadway actor and appeared with Marissa <laughs> Tomei in Wait Until Dark. I interviewed him beforehand. We hung, I mean, it was, it was the worst performance I've ever seen on a stage by an allegedly professional actor. Okay, fair okay. enough. So that's, that's the bottom line. <laughs> there. Wow. You know when most... you saw your, your cousin made you go to a community theater production <laughs> in a small town? <laughs> that's him. And made even worse by the fact that he was opposite Marissa Tomei, who was terrific, and opposite, I'm blanking on the actor's name, who was the villain in Avatar. Um, oh, Steven, yeah, yeah, Stephen Stephen Lang. Stephen Anyone? Lang, who was Anyone? wonderful. Um, and and here's Joe Amateur. You know, you almost felt like he was looking. Anyway, awful. Um, I've been disappointed in the last batch of Quentin Tarantino movies because I think they all have the same ending. And they all basically are saying mm -hmm. uh, there are horrible, violent things that happen in the world. And you know what would be great? If we could kick the shit out of all that horrible, violent people. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it great? Wow, man, let's all get our juices up because we want to beat the shit out of bad people. That's what this movie was. That, to me, was Inglorious Bastards. That, to me, was, Fair enough. to a certain extent, I think a better, I think Django is a better movie than either of those, but same kind of thing, uh, where he wanted me to take pleasure in brutality. And even if that brutality is against something horrible, I don't take pleasure in that. Um, I can enjoy an action film. I can enjoy a violent film, um, but but I think he was instructing me to do that, and I and I did not respond to that. I shut down at that. Um, there's some great scenes in it. There's wonderful if, stuff, but he also makes movies about movies, almost exclusively, and I didn't feel as much of a human connection to a lot of it. There was always that layer of, but watch me reference this movie. But watch me pay attention to this movie. And, I, and I've read some really smart analysis of this movie that if I didn't see the movie would have convinced me that this is a great movie. Mm -hmm. So I, I respect the fact that other people are seeing a lot more in this film than I am. But I didn't like it. This was one of the big arguments at the IFJA meeting. Actually, yeah. it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I, I am much more uh, fond of Quentin Tarantino's more recent work than, than Lewis. Um, I, liked, I felt like this one... I would not deny that it, it relies on the same basic, let's take this uh, like iconic villain in popular culture and beat the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. And then you will feel great about it. I thought that this one had the nice twist at the end where it's, it's, it's admitting that it is fiction, unlike in Glorious Bastards or Django, which both rest on the fact that you've gotten the pleasure out of that and the heroes essentially ride away. You know, The end of Inglourious Bastards is equally self-reverential with Brad Pitt saying, oh, this is my masterpiece. Like, mm -hmm. clearly that's Quentin Tarantino being proud he made something in mm -hmm. a, like, like a period Boy, piece. didn't he show Hitler. Yeah, right. He, yeah. He's proud of himself <laughs> for that. Um, but I was much fonder of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I wouldn't put it on my top ten. I don't know that I put it in the... Uh, IFJA top 10. I think it did end up making it, it there. Making the top 10. But um, my wife's analysis of it, uh, I can't even really capture um, 
I found very moving. It's on our website. It's it's one of our most read reviews, surprisingly. Even now, it, it, it continuously mm, gets hits. It's, hers is primarily about Margot Robbie's performances, Sharon Tate, which she found particularly moving. Um, but I can't even capture yeah. what she said. But, mm. uh, you know. I like it more than this. I think the act's getting tired. I, that's that's <laughs> yeah. seriously. I'm I'm with you. The act is getting tired. Mm-hmm. I've seen this. I've I've seen it. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And everything becomes one step removed from Pulp Fiction for me. Yeah. And I I still love that movie, and it still holds up for me. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the catalog is really starting to wear thin. Yeah, I that's, haven't rewatched yeah. Pulp Fiction. I would the one I would rewatch is Jackie Brown. Actually, that is a I, great that was the one movie. I remember actually enjoying more than that's a great movie. The other stuff and basically everything since for me. Yeah, this one felt the most like Jackie Brown of his most recent films ever mm. since Jackie Brown. I didn't I didn't feel that yeah. way. Yeah. I, I felt like it captured the the the, the feeling of uselessness at middle age. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I capture uh, that know. on a daily yeah, basis. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting. I want to yeah. ask you. A, I want to ask you a question. What your yes. life experience is like? Do you yes. have Do you have kids? One. How old? Ten months. Okay. All right. Right. I have a son who's in his twenties and in the military. Yeah. So I think my perspective on anything like an Inglorious Bastards yeah. or anything like that is vastly different than yours. And I think I'm going to get I'm going to push back a little bit. But that's exactly why we run Midwest Film Journal there the way go. we do, because I would much prefer to read your take on that theme okay. than I would ever prefer to write on that theme. Right a on. pitch is about to happen, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> You're watching it right here. The birth we, of a relationship. <laughs> we are. We, we are, do. We are an open platform. Get yeah. real. Well, you want to keep going with this? This, this is, is great. Didn't see it. I can. I did not actually see it either. What is Terry Gilliam running off at the mouth about, uh, yeah, about well, anyway? That's another side. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, it, well, that leads to a good question. Shut up. No, but that leads to a great question, which I've wrestled with many times. I'm curious about your take on it. Oh, I know. Where How this is much going. do you judge the art? By what you know about the artist. I can no longer watch a Woody Allen movie. I can no longer listen to a Bill Cosby bit. It's ruined. This has ruined things for me. This has ruined things for me. And uh, they're like Love and Death, I hold that movie close to my heart, but I can't watch it anymore because right. I know that the creator is, a, is just a terrible, terrible can you? Person. But can you go to a museum and appreciate a Gauguin painting? I was never a fan. Uh, <laughs> I know that's, that's an awful out, but I was never a fan. I think, but, but I mean, right, does time? Does how much does time play into it? A lot, a lot. Okay. Time, and I think there's a certain level of cultural impact. Like we know, like we know, Picasso was a terrible misogynist and a bastard, right? right. But he he literally invented cubism. Right. He and Brock invents. They invent okay. cubism. One they, could they, argue they, that Woody Allen created a form. One could. Yeah. One could. Michael Jackson. There's another great example. I can't listen to Michael Jackson much anymore without being a bit off put. I, I really can't. I, I just Can you like, step back yeah. to Jackson 5, though? <laughs> that's a f- I mean, I know that's a line. fair question. <laughs> I, I could appreciate that. I mean, I'm, no, one. He, he was a kid. One know? bad yeah. apple don't spoil Boy, the, the whole bunch, bunch girl. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can go back there and enjoy that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where are you on the sort of art versus the artist? <laughs> I um, I'm, I'm sorry, I just try to be aware mm-hmm. of of what you are watching and what I mean. Yeah. It changes some of the subtext of some of Woody Allen's work right. to yeah. re- realize what's going on in his personal life. Mm-hmm. One of the weirdest um, move, yeah, having to do with screeners and everything else. Maybe two years ago, whatever it was. Um, as a member of Indiana Film Journalists and somebody who votes on these awards, we got a screener in the mail. 
And I popped that screener in and watched the movie. Oh, boy. And two days later, Louis C.K.'s shit hit the fan. Oh, my God. And the movie got pulled from distribution and was not released. And that was weird. Oh, yeah. That movie was... That was weird. That movie, he was... Well, in that movie, he was... What was it? Do you remember the title? I something I love you something uh, yeah yeah so that is like I love daddy, you daddy, daddy it was yeah, I love, love you daddy. daddy and they had sent the screeners to critics organizations and right. before all the stuff came out and there was a, he was clearly working through some stuff in that yeah there's, that there's was definitely some process watch. going on in there but I wonder how it would <laughs> yeah. feel because you know I would I will not go to a Roman Polanski movie I will not pay money to see one right um, I will not go to a Woody Allen movie but these screeners come, and we are supposed to judge them for awards. So if a Woody Allen film comes, I'll watch it. Okay. And a part of me is saying, I hope it's not good. Well, we haven't really had to worry right. about we that. Right, we haven't had like, to worry about that, that because so, they I mean, stuck recently. Yeah. But I don't know how I would feel about, if the film turned out to be a masterpiece, would I be able to say, you know what? This is one of the top movies of the year. Okay. I'm not sure. And I haven't been in that position yet, but it's a it's Fortunately, a we haven't. Yeah, we haven't thankfully right. been in that position, but Yeah, and now there are a lot happen. more people who yeah. are, aren't as extreme as the stuff as as the Bill Cosby stuff, as the Louis C.K. stuff, as whatever. But I mean there was pushback about um, Manchester by the Sea. Because yeah, Casey of Affleck. Casey yeah. Affleck. Oh, right. You know, I mean and so there there's a case where it's not the the artist behind the whole thing. Right. But it's somebody involved, an and there's a pushback, it, yeah. and you you know you read a lot about people saying, you know, don't support that. I, he I would, shouldn't be nominated for best actor. Or he shouldn't. I would like publicly to ask everyone who's involved in Fleabag not to do anything stupid because <laughs> I love that freaking show. Yeah. Anyway. Another movie or two. The, the Joker. Joker. Somebody tackle this. I was I was not a huge fan of the Joker. I didn't hate the Joker. I mostly I I appreciated Walking Phoenix's physicality as I always do with anything he's in. So it's kind of hard to boil it down and say Joker was a specifically good you know Walking Phoenix um, performance. It was not as good as his performance in You Were Never Really Here, Lynn Ramsey's revenge movie from which is on Amazon Prime for I, free. I thought he was terrific in The Village. So you know that's me. <laughs> well, he is terrific in almost everything he's in. So it's hard to to boil it down. I mean, if he wins Best Actor for Joker, I can't argue with it. I mean, it's an award for his whole career. I, um, I, I've been a you know big fan of comic books and superhero movies for a long time, and I'm getting to that point where I'm finally you know old enough to see, you know, to feel like most of them aren't doing a lot different from the rest of the, each other. And Joker didn't feel different enough to me um, from what it could have been. I'm not, you know, I didn't find it politically offensive as I think a lot of people were prepared to. Um, I just thought it felt like a supervillain movie that was rated R. Yeah, to me, it didn't even feel like a supervillain movie. It didn't feel like a comic book movie at all. It felt like Taxi Driver fused with King of Comedy, and I didn't see anything with with scenes that I didn't buy at all in it that was trying to have an underlying uh, social message but really didn't care about that social message, I felt. Um, it's kind of a meme. And it, it's, yeah, it's excusing. It's, again, it's another... Oh, here's the reason why he's violent, but it didn't yeah. build to anything for me. I thought structurally the film was a mess because it was it was all sort of prelude, and to me there wasn't an arc to it. There was it didn't take it any place, um, 
And again, it was so derivative, I thought, of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy in the same way that, like, another movie I didn't care about 10 years ago, Avatar, was so derivative of other movies that I didn't engage with it the way I think mm -hmm. it wanted me to. Did you see Joker? I've, I've consciously avoided it. You have? For, yeah. for a lot of the political reasons that you yeah. mentioned, and also because it is it has been... Uh, written as uh, ri uh, the reviewers have said how derivative it was to two movies that I oh, think yeah. are amazing, which is Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. Right. I don't mind, you know, lifting up the rock and looking at, you know, what's underneath the, you know, those movies can be. I don't do this for a living, so I got a limited amount of time. <laughs> well, so as a consumer, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to look under rocks. Right. But know? that's the, uh, yeah. But that's the other thing that I think people, you know, we have this culture now that sort of says. You know, I mean, when I was in high, you know, I again, I'll play the age card here. You know, I was the guy who used to get the TV guide and go through it and circle the movies that I wanted to see because they were going to be okay, my... boomer. Okay, boomer. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll proudly wear that because they were the only opportunity to see the movies. So somewhere around junior high, some people started talking about HBO, and later on, there started to be these, you know, VCRs that had. This is the visual had play and record, you know, yes. and so 12, 12, exactly. 12, 12. <laughs> so there were, you know, but you had to carefully play. So there was no expectation that you were going to see every movie. There was no expectation that everyone was going to see everything. And now we have this sort of cultural expectation almost that everyone's going to see every movie. And it's, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. So my message is, I think critics and, audi and other audience members, because critics are audience members, should be very comfortable not seeing something. If you don't think you're likely to get something out of it, it's perfectly okay to pass. It's not a problem. You're not going to be at some kind of cultural deficit cool. because of it. You're going to be okay. And most of the time, you can still engage in the cultural conversation without having seen the movie. People do it all the time anyway. So. Can we, can we talk about Mrs. Maisel? No, that's TV. <laughs> 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 nah, let's talk about movies. We're going to shut you down on that. Little Women. Little Women, the best movie of the year. Wow. The best movie of the year. I think it's, it's glorious. Um, and I'm sorry to step on if you guys were going to chime in first. No. no. I think it's not just that it is so full of life in all of the characters in every shot that it's beautifully put together, but it also is filtered through such a smart directorial and writing sensibility that it, it walks an amazing tightrope in not violating what the book brought to it, but also saying... Also bringing in Alcott and the idea of what was expected of women writers at that time mm. and people writing about women at that time and basically allowing both options at the end without it being here's this ending and here's this ending. I thought it was, I, I don't throw brilliant around too often, but I think the ending of that film is brilliant. Right. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful. It was my top film of the year uh, with just mercy behind it. I also love Little Women. We saw it um, at our press screener, um, and we left the theater. And there are very few movies that we see that have such a mastery of their own tone that I feel like I want to just live in them. Mm -hmm. And I could have watched that movie forever. Mm -hmm. 
And speaking of the earlier question about the difference between watching in a theater, watching at home, we got a screener disc of Little Women a day or two after we saw the screening, and my wife and I watched it again at home, and there was just no difference between uh, the way in which that movie so completely engaged both my wife and I. I I mean, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't know. I mean, when it gets to what the best movie of the year is, there are so many movies. Once you get to the point where you watch, I mean, I watched I watched only 180 <laughs> movies that came out in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> which is a step down from the previous two years because we had a baby. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, it helps to get all of them sent to your door at the end right, of the yeah. year. I mean, really. And you know, to have a wife who understands, but, and watches them with you. But I mean, little women is so unique in of itself that it's hard to say it's not the best of the year. Right. And I saw you know, it. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it yeah. on uh, home screen twice. Uh, the other film that, I mean, I wanted to live in that, to sort of be in that world yeah. for longer. The other one that was like that, unfortunately, that got, you know, like other films, screwed around Oscar time is Dolomite Is My Name. Whoa. I love that world. I love the vision of that movie. I love how that movie made me feel. And I loved the characters in that movie. The relationships were fresh. And there was something that was, you know, not something that had been a film that was made 17 times before. Uh, but again, just mastering what it did. You just mentioned two films back-to-back that got screwed by the Oscars, by, yeah. the, by the Academy. So why is that happening still? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the, the step-back question Hardball. is, and we do, <laughs> but why do we care? That's that always is a, an amazing that thing. That is a with Why we question. care so much about what essentially is a, a employee, well, the employee of the year awards yeah, okay. for Hollywood. Yep. Um, but we do because it's fun. Because some of us don't give a damn about the Super Bowl. You know, and so, you know, the Oscars are an excuse to have a pool at the office that we can actually engage with. Um, and it's, it's kind of fun because, I mean, all of us, well, you're working on a yeah. series for um, for Midwest Film Journal about, well, tell about that series. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing our next group writing series. It's called Oscar Gold. And it's a subversion of most uh, film writing websites that, that we like to read have the series that are about, you know, what movie one that shouldn't have won. So like one major example is Shakespeare in Love beating Saving Private Ryan. But Shakespeare in Love is a better film. Well, see, and that <laughs> After is After the first 20 minutes. And and that's sort of what our... <laughs> Sorry. No, no, that's exactly what our, our project is. The project is taking a controversial Oscar winner, like Forrest Gump beating Pulp Fiction in 1995, right. and, and writing about why actually Forrest Gump did deserve to win Best Picture. And so, so taking the so taking subverting the, the conventional wisdom. Exactly. We're not complaining about what won Best Picture or what should have won Best Picture. We're trying to look at what deserved to win Best Picture after all. And, you know, we're not we're not writing them from a perspective necessarily of saying, well, you know, uh, uh, for instance, um, let's think. Well, the Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. yeah Kramer, OK, thank you. So so uh, one of the essays I got in today um, is why Kramer versus Kramer did deserve to win Best Picture, even though Apocalypse Now was also in the running. And any, I mean, <laughs> anyone you talk to now would talk about, well, Apocalypse Now was the movie with the greater uh, influence This over may time. be the first time in the past eight years that Kramer versus Kramer was mentioned by anybody. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I know that Lou is writing a piece on Oliver. I'm writing about Oliver. So, Cindy, we're watching Oliver very soon again. Yes. Um, so we have a really interesting lineup. Uh, actually, the piece that spurred this is one of our contributors, uh, James Ledesma. He's written a few articles for us. He and I go way back. We worked at a bookstore together for several years. We talked about music and movies for a long time. And he wrote me a piece that was 
So at the end of the year, we have everyone write a 500-word essay on the best movie they saw that year. And we like to publish them all together in a roundtable. Uh, he wrote me a 3,000-word <laughs> essay on Green Book and why he thought Green Book captured the musician-on-the-road experience uh, exceedingly well, despite all of the other flaws or critiques of Green Book. And obviously, Green Book was sort of a controversial winner last year, to the point where they knew in the ceremony it was coming up, <laughs> and they waited to talk about it until the very end of the ceremony. <laughs> they, they finally brought it up. So, so he wrote this 3,000-word piece, and I was like, well, this is awesome, and we should run it, but what other essays can come out of this topic. So that's our Oscar Gold series that's running at the end of this month. Yeah, and I really, what I appreciate about things like that is I don't necessarily, and I, I sort of spoke about this in the beginning, I'm not just looking for, I don't want a review that's just going to reinforce what I felt about something. If I'm going to take the time to read something, I want to read something that challenges my viewpoint uh, or, or, put, or puts into better words how I felt about something. I love reading a review that goes, yeah, that's how I felt. I'd rather just have a link to that review and say here. So do, you guys, do yeah. you guys have a favorite critic, a favorite film critic? Uh, Ed Johnson. Oh, wow. He's, he's up there. Lovely. Um, he's, some, he's somebody I would just, and he's, for those listening from Bangladesh or Bolivia, he is a uh, Indianapolis-based critic. He used to write for Nouveau News Weekly. And the easiest person to edit ever yeah. for anyone. Just, I always appreciate his perspective, even if it was a film that I didn't have an interest mm -hmm. in no red or, or didn't agree with. I actually feel guilty not mentioning Ed when I was talking about Sam and I growing up writing film criticism together because you it's, were reading him. it's rare that you have a local film critic who is, public, who is that good and that right. singular in his criticism. But I mean, I it's also hokey to say, but I read everyone in the IFJA, like Lou, Richard Propes, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, our own Nick Rogers. Yeah. Um, I read Chris Lloyd. Yeah. I like, used to, we, you know, we have a ridiculous talent pool of local film critics in Indianapolis. Right. As deep as this. And, this, and this goes way back, but when I was first becoming interested in movies, I didn't know, I mean, I knew the books at the library by Pauline Keel and people like yeah. that. Ebert. But I didn't know from any, I didn't even know from Ebert. I mean, oh, really? I knew from Ebert from TV. But I would, you know, go to the newsstand where I would hang mm. out and just flip, I wouldn't buy the newspaper, but I would flip through to read Joe Baltic out of Philadelphia right and read his reviews because here's somebody paying attention to something that I care about. And that's when caring that much about movies seemed like it put you in the minority, you know, because there wasn't as much dialogue among right. eighth graders at the time. Right. So different world. Um, we're going to take an intermission break. Um, we're going to see what's happening on the future, other guest front. And worst case scenario, we got some cool guests coming in. Uh, and in, so uh, let's take a break. Thank you so much for paying attention. And we'll be back shortly. Welcome back to Lou Harry Gets Real, everyone. My name is Ed Wank. Lou Harry is here, and our next guest will be up in a minute. But first, I need to tell you about where we are right now. The lovely Oxford Room, named after the birthplace of its owner. The perfect spot for so many types of gatherings with the same excellent service as the aristocrat restaurant right downstairs. Formerly three studio apartments, very comfortable, I hear. Uh, the renovated area opened in 2014 and now features rich wood paneling, leaded and stained glass windows and fixtures, as well as artwork and collectibles. 
expertly curated by owner Rick Rising Moore. Check out the old hockey stuff by the men's room. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm serious, man. Hershey Bars, Wash, or, uh, Indianapolis Capitals. You're going to have people just coming in for that. I know. They should have an audio walking tour yes. of the aristocrat. Absolutely. And to my left. <laughs> uh, to my left. The Oxford Room seats about 60 people, has AV equipment and really good ones. Nice job with the uh, distributed audio guys. Uh, a full bar, private bathrooms, a separate entrance, and elevator access. Have an event here in the Oxford Room at the Aristocrat. We really appreciate these folks offering us the Oxford Room as the home for this podcast. You, we hope you can come uh, to one of the shows to check this room out or come by for any occasion you have here at the Aristocrat and have a great meal. The Aristocrat has been owned and managed by Rick Rising Moore since 1969. Thank you. Thank you, Aristocrat. And now, here's Lou. All right. We um, have had a variety of guests over the year plus that we've been doing the podcast, but none have faced a greater challenge getting here than Kenny Phelps. Uh, Quick introduction. Uh, Jazz drummer, over 20 years of experience on the local and national music scene, the CEO of Owl Music Group. You're going to hear lots about his work and uh, hear a little music, but... What happened today, Kenny? <laughs> well, I went to my room. I have a shed. It recently had burned down. We rebuilt it, and I got this real expensive lock and gate. And I went out, and I tried to stick my key in. It just didn't go in, so I kind of defrosted and got my uh, thing I do my mat, not my, uh, my candles with. Took that out, and I got the key in, and instead of being patient, I just tried to turn it, and my key broke off. <laughs> so I couldn't get in the room. So I And what was in the room? All my drums, <laughs> all my drumsticks, all that kind of stuff. So I got a locksmith, and it turned into be worse than where I started. So I just thought I'd just drive on over. You know? Very good. <laughs> so we are glad you are here. First of all, tell us about early i know you work a lot with with students and young people tell us about your first experience banging the drum pots and pans mm-hmm. my mom pulling out tupperware bowls and uh just playing along with the cartoons and stuff like that and uh my neighbor had a set of drums and for right. christmas they got those drums for me and i would just bang away just i just <laughs> loved it and you know and growing up in in the church that mm-hmm. was where i learned the music, you right. know, uh, about music, and my first experience seeing uh, live musicians. Now, um, usually, when when somebody gives a drum set to a child, um, <laughs> there's somebody who's happy about it, who is giving the gift, and there are other people going, <laughs> "What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> Did you have some resistance to?" Uh, yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> you know, you start off just kind of banging around. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was fine until it just started happening every day after school. (laughs) And then it got to the neighbors, Mm -hmm. you know. And Uh as I got older, it got worse. Well, the inherent problem here is that where does the band practice? At the drummer's house. (laughs) Right. And I didn't have a car, so it would make it, you know, convenient for them to come over. And the passion just kept growing. You know, I wanted to go into business, so I took business classes in school. And actually got a job right out of school at Eli Lilly's. Oh. And uh, 
So what were you listening to? What what yeah. really turned you on to, to doing I this? I listened to a little bit of everything. Okay. I, the gospel stuff I grew up on. Obviously, yeah. R&B stuff that was around. Right. Uh, the DeBarge family. Okay. Uh, you can go around. I just love all kinds of music. All right. So mm-hmm. How did you, why, why the affinity for jazz? You could have been, you could have gone a lot of directions. I actually did get into jazz until 94. Oh, okay. Okay, so what that were you into the, in 93? <laughs> <laughs> 93, I was touring with El DeBarge. Okay, there Okay, we go. well that's So it. somebody who I grew up listening to, I wow. had, uh, an opportunity to play with but I was just I just wanted to play uh-huh. and uh, going back to Lily's I got this job and I thought man this is going to be great I'm going to make a lot of money they started having me in the lab because I just went in was cleaning tables mopping and then mm. you know it was a job shelling program and okay. I went in and they liked me and they gave me a job I was like $15 an hour this is great <laughs> you know I can buy all the drumsticks in the world no. <laughs> you know, and uh, I just kept going you know with these guys and they said you know we'd like to have you come into the labs and we'll give you you know send you to school and I was like what do they do in the labs like, they- <laughs> are you expected to be <laughs> wired with electrodes <laughs> <laughs> well I, I knew they were working on you know diseases right. and stuff yeah. like that d- dissecting lab rats and all that uh-huh. kind of stuff and I just found that not interesting at all. And to be honest, every day I got up to go to that job, my stomach would hurt. Mm-hmm. And that was a slight indicator that this was not the path I was supposed to go on. But, you know, you look at the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what I did, uh, I quit and I didn't tell my parents. And I would go get up every morning and mm-hmm. go to a friend of mine's house. Right. And I, he'd let me practice. Okay. And so they finally found out because I wasn't making any more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be an indicator. That would be. Yeah. The check stopped yeah. rolling in. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I just wanted to have, if I could commit to it, mm. I felt like going to work all day then trying to come home and practice for two or three hours. I just I didn't feel like the commitment and the dedication was there. Now, how did, obviously, there are a lot of people who might have been in your position at that time, somebody who. You know, got the drum set, played, practiced. How does the door open, and how are you prepared to walk through it when you get to, you know, what's the link between that and touring with El DeBarge? Well, there was a record company here uh, called Ty Scott Records, and they're still here. Um, And there was another company that I worked for. And I played for one of the artists who knew the DeBarge family. Okay. And so they said, well, can you come up to Grand Rapids and just play on this track. I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. So I drove up and I got the job. And I start all of a sudden, we're playing Arsenio Hall. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but along the way, it's just little nuggets, little uh-huh. opportunities that I would just pursue yeah. and it would open up a door. But I always really work really hard at whatever it is I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I would sit down and practice. If I could just dedicate and spend the right amount of time at it, then I feel like I can accomplish whatever right. I want to do. Now, as a musician in there, was that your first TV appearance? Yes. So mm. how was the drummer treated compared to the lead singer? <laughs> He's not even noticed. <laughs> I could be anybody back there. <laughs> they don't care. You know, but they were, you know, they were trying to come back right. after a long stint. There had been some things that mm-hmm. were not really popular that had happened with their family right. and stuff like that. So they were trying to come back on an upper eyes, but yeah. by then the music scene had changed. Yeah. Well, that's an, I'm sort of fascinated by that. We talked early, earlier in the program about those sort of temporary relationships that get created, how mm-hmm. you know, musicians might mm-hmm. come together for a concert tour or for a recording and then separate and go wherever. 
in those kind of situations, were you working with the same band or was it musicians in and out? Kind of in and out. In and out? You know, it was kind of a pickup thing. It wasn't, uh, they were trying to get back on the track. Right. So they were calling musicians. They didn't have the funding to hire Hmm. the bigger players they once had. So I was trying to find the next best, which was a great opportunity for me to open up doors for me to see other things, meet other people, and then kind of move in a different direction. Sure, some of that is, wow, I'm working with this great bass player, I'm working with this great, but I'm sure there are other times where somebody isn't else in the band isn't quite carrying the weight. How do you, how do you adjust to that? Well, I mean, you have to, I always put myself in that position because a lot of times, even with the artists that I've played with, sometimes I'm the weakest link. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I have to be careful when you get on a certain platform or whatever you consider that platform is that you show the same grace and mercy mm-hmm. towards somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I always think about that. You know, right. wh- wherever we play, whoever we're playing with, at that point you become a mentor. You right. become somebody who helps pull the train along as right. opposed to just riding. Right. And so I'm very conscious of that and mm-hmm. try to be, you know. Now, you've done some touring. Yes. What, tell us a little bit about what the realities of touring life are for music. I mean, is it is it a... You know, four different cities in a week. Is it a gig, and then you're on the road, and then a week and a half later, you're playing somewhere else? Well, uh, the biggest touring I've done was with Dee Dee Bridgewater. Mm-hmm. So I was actually playing at the Jazz Kitchen for the American Pianist Association, and she was one of the guests. Right. And I didn't know she was in the audience, and I was <laughs> playing, and she came up and said, "I'd love to work with you." And I was like, ah. <laughs> "Wow!" You know, she's a three-time Grammy. I'm like, "Oh." Uh. I did, and so she came again after the second break. I'd love to work with you. I said, like, yeah. I think you're just saying this. <laughs> you know, and so we exchanged information. And so I sent her a text. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, this is Kenny Phelps, Indianapolis. Met you at the American Pianist Association. Would love to work with you at some point. I didn't hear anything for a month. I was like, I knew it. You Did know, you doubt that it was really her? <laughs> well, I knew it was her. I knew it was her. But she's busy. She's working right. with my idols and the people who I look up to. Mm-hmm. And so something, I was walking my dog one day, and someone said, you need to call her. And I said, like, ah. <laughs> And so I just picked up the phone, and I called her. And she said, hey, Kenny, I'm glad you called. Hey, I was thinking about you. I'd like to take you on a tour to try out. I'm like, oh, man, this is great. You know? <laughs> and uh, I said, okay. She said, well, let me have my manager get back with you. And uh, then we'll set that up. So they got back with me. She said, well, I need you to go out for two weeks. I said, okay, great. Mm-hmm. And she said, we're going to start out in Istanbul. We're going to spray. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been to Muncie and back. But never, <laughs> you know. So I didn't even have a passport. <laughs> so I had to drive to Chicago the next day and get an overnight passport. Get back because they needed all that information. Right. To send it over for a work visa. Right. Quick it's, thing. How many people here have driven to Chicago for a passport? <laughs> Some of you have. It's always at least a few. Yes. You're not alone, man. So uh, I fly out from Chicago. Mm-hmm. They're already over in Europe. Right. So I'm actually getting on planes, and I've never been out of the country. So I'm talking to everybody on the plane. Have you ever been to Istanbul? What's it like? You know, what do I need? To, you know, because you get off the plane, there's no English, there's no signs. It, I mean, it's just a, a shock. Right. And I get there, I lose all my bags, I lose all my symbols. You know, so we get in there, and I'm just kind of rattled. You know, now, when you do it, just to clarify, what? So what exactly does it? You're not traveling with your entire kit, right? No. 
I carry my clothes and my symbols and sticks. Okay. So, and I don't really have to carry that, but I need something that's familiar to me. Right. To kind Look, of I'm a drummer. The, right. <laughs> to make the music. <laughs> but I had never experienced travel wow. like that. We would go in a city in the dark, and I would leave in the morning in the dark. Mm-hmm. So I can say I've been to Spain. I have not seen one building in daylight. <laughs> Most of the time it was flying in early in the morning. Right. You know, you go to your hotel, uh, you get checked in, you do a sound check, 90-minute show, 2 o'clock lobby call, drive to the next city. Did you find that different crowds in different countries reacted to different things, or is it universal? Universal. Okay. They, they really appreciate the music. That's and wonderful. She's been over there 20 years. Okay. So it was a great appreciation. And to experience touring at that level uh it, it's something i mean you you know you get treated like royalty but yeah. it's like a rock tour setting well, all the setting all, i'm sorry no no setting I, all the losing luggage aside and everything else <laughs> but that moment when you sit down before that first number begins what what is going through your mind i'm on tour with one of my with somebody i really really admire with this just amazing band. And somebody that everybody in, who's ever heard her admires. Right, in <laughs> Istanbul. What is going through your mind before you, you, you hit that snare for the first time? Well, you know, we didn't get a chance to practice. So, <laughs> if that one's so going to be I'm, my, I'm, I'm, I'm walking to the stage. They're all comfortable. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so, did they at least give you the set list? Well, I got the set list. <laughs> you know, but, you you know, I, I did my research. I, I, oh, I right. watched her on YouTube. I watched... <laughs> Several different versions of the same song, you know, because I didn't know. I know in jazz, you know, it's not as written. Sure. The the chart, what we're looking at is an interpretation. It's like a conversation we're having now. I can't prepare for it. You didn't send me any questions. So I just have to go with it. And that's kind of what it was with her. Just walking on stage and the experience was. She's prettier than I am. (laughs) (laughs) For for those listening at home. (laughs) But the first thing that happened was, you know, they, the, the piano player, they called, announced Dee Dee Bridgewater. We walk out first. He sits down. He pulled his piano branch up and it made a... <laughs> and all of a sudden, they're starting... I'm like, what song is this? You know, and they're just playing off of the moment. Off and of so, the sound of off his of the bench? the sound of the piano bench. <laughs> And so the horn player's wow. making sounds, the bass player. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there. And then so she finally walks out. She's like, are you going to join us? <laughs> and I, told, I said, I don't know that song. <laughs> but this is in front of an audience like clues. You know, right. 5,000 people sitting out there. So finally, I just start messing uh-huh. around and we ease into this song. Wow. And then she starts another song. All the songs we did were not like anything I had listened to. Mm -hmm. So that forced me to really open my ears Mm -hmm. and pay attention. And after that first night, she pulled me over. She said, you wouldn't be here if you couldn't play. Mm. So that's first. Wow. And you wouldn't be here if I didn't ask you. So I need you to have the confidence. And I want to see what I saw in Indianapolis. Mm. I said, okay. And so I just slowly over that two weeks... It takes time to develop. Yeah. I've got to figure out who the players are, how yeah. they play. Yeah. What, you know, their knowledge of music and their experience is much more vast than mine. They were playing with Herbie Hancock and Chickaria, you know. And so when I'm sitting in, you know, the backstage, they're all talking about, yeah, I just left this gig with Chickaria. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you kind of, your confidence kind of gets rattled because you don't share those same experiences. Mm-hmm. But you still you do share the love of music. So as a drummer, you obviously have to connect with the bass player immediately, right? Because you you guys are the rhythm section. You've got a pretty much. Have you ever had the experience where you guys just weren't connecting? Yeah, well, you, over in Europe, we, you know, we kept subbing it out. You know, oh, there were really? different players that would play for half of the tour, and so I get locked in with this guy, and then the next one. It's a different way he plays rhythm. Right. So now the same song feels totally different. And so now I'm trying to adjust, you know. So that's a little hard. But it's, you know, it's mm. just a part of the, the gig. You right. know, mm. you learn how to adapt. Mm. I'm fascinated by that that sense of needing so much to be in the moment because you're with a team of players who, you know, like a great basketball team, you got to know, you know, be aware of it, what everyone else is doing, where they are and what your piece of that is but it got me thinking about audience members at instrumental music as well especially instrumental music no non-narrative stuff because i think it's harder and harder for people to not think about who's on my cell phone what am i going to be you know what am i going to tell people tomorrow that i saw how am i going to rather than just sit there and listen to the music in the moment since you started playing have you sensed any differences in audiences Somewhat. I mean, you know, an audience sometimes, I, I, when I go, I go as an escape. Hmm. So I, I, whatever you're leaving from the moment that you're there in that, that, that time with us, we, what do we do in that transition? What, what, do we, what are you escaping and what are we offering you in the transition? And why, the reason I call it a transition is you're going somewhere else. So here, you came. In this moment, what did you get? you're leaving to go somewhere else. So within that transition, what was your experience? So mm-hmm. my goal has always been to give you an excellent musical performance, especially if you're paying. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you're coming out. You could mm-hmm. easily sit home and watch Netflix or whatever your, your entertainment is. So if you're going to take uh, the time to come out, then it's our responsibility to provide excellence and quality to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that depends on our offering to you. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes as jazz musicians, we want you to stimulate us, you know, Mm -hmm. check out the art, check out, you know, and we're not as always engaging Mm -hmm. as you would look at a rock band Mm -hmm. or a pop band who has gone into the theatrical side and got the lights and the screen and they're dancing and they're singing songs that you know. Sometimes if you go to a jazz performance, it's like, I don't know when the song ended or started. (laughs) You know, especially if you're not into jazz. So that's some of the things I talked to Mm -hmm. our jazz colleagues about is a little bit a lot more engaging. Right. But also does when you have that much tech, when you have that specific lighting, those specific dancers, everything else, to me, that always risks feeling like, well, I'm seeing the show in Indianapolis, and they're going to see the exact same show three days later in Dubuque. Mm-hmm. You know, that you're seeing almost the equivalent of a movie because they're doing it exactly the way they're supposed to do it, or else they're screwing up their light cues. Mm-hmm. A good jazz show is a little different than that. Oh, definitely. It's, it's like this conversation. We wouldn't mm-hmm. come in here tomorrow and try to relive this exact same conversation. Right. You sit here, you got to come in at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Your locks have to get frozen. You know, <laughs> you, 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 you don't. You just kind of roll with it, you know. And so that's the beauty. But I think adding to that beauty would be a little ambiance, mm-hmm. would be, you know, some of the things we can learn from all of that because, right. you know, our audiences are a lot smaller. 
Right. And I don't think all the time it's just the music. I right. think it's sometimes the presentation. How much of that is structure of a show? To, how important is what's the first number you're going to play? What's the last number you're going to play? What's the encore you're going to do? Uh, I, I, for me, I, I think it's very important. It's because do I want to capture your attention or do I want to meander through two or three songs and finally we hit our stride? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's certain people, I think like Rob Dixon has a certain charisma mm -hmm. that he can get up, he just kind of talks, he's funny, you know, he pulls it off. And so then he can like, uh, let's do this song. He's kind of mm -hmm. reading the audience to see mm -hmm. where everybody is. So there's no one particular way to do it uh, for me. I like to kind of have it a little bit more structured, mm -hmm. but still hire jazz musicians who can be spontaneous. But I think this, it just has to be a little bit more order. Right. I, I want to kind of have an impact coming out. So I kind of want to hit you, you know, bam, yeah. let's, let's get it. And you're like, whoa, this is, <laughs> we're going on a ride. You know, I want you kind of <laughs> to feel that as a kind of, uh, was this worth my ticket? You know, mm -hmm. I don't want that kind of feeling. Now, with obviously, with your talent and the connections you were building, you probably could have done studio work and toured consistently and kept very, very busy with all that. What led you into taking Owl Music Group? Well, that company was originally called Owl Studios, right. which was uh, a birth from Al, uh, Alan J. Hall and Rob Dixon. They started this company to allow uh, musicians here to have an opportunity to present their music on a national level. And I played on a lot of those records. And um, kind of midway through that, I could see kind of the music industry was changing, how people were buying music, how people were listening to music. And, and so that's a lot of investment. Hmm. And I'm not sure that the long 10-year uh, strategy was kind of put on the table. <clears throat> and so they came to me and said, hey, man, I, I think you would be good at taking over this label. And I'm like, I don't want to sell records. <laughs> you know? But then I thought about it, you know, maybe I could use this for something else. It already mm. had kind of built a platform. It already mm. had some artists. It already had some national distribution. So we, we kind of took it over. Uh, a friend of mine, I, I talked to him, and I said, you know what we should do? We should take this platform, and we should connect with audience artists, I mean, uh, agencies <clears throat> that produce positive change in and around our community. So I went to the Little Red Door, uh, Gigi's Playhouse, um, a couple of other places I went to. And I wanted to be able to uh, bring artists and audiences together to make impact in our community. So many times as the musician, we just come in, we want you to give us money, buy our CDs, but do we give back to our own community that supports us? Mm -hmm. So I thought if I could connect with agencies like that, I could also bring awareness to their calls, and then hopefully people will either volunteer or try to get involved, and then it would also be at our audience as well. And it did just that. But teaching at the University of Indianapolis, and then I also teach at Butler University, there are so <clears throat> many students who come out wanting to do what I'm doing. I, I just want to be a performer. But then I, I look back at the experiences I've seen on the road of all the tech crews and the lighting crews and the camera guys and the marketing people and the audio guys. And a lot of them didn't even play instruments, but yet they were connected to the very thing that I loved. Mm -hmm. So we started toiling around with the mission statement. And I said, you know, maybe we should kind of focus more on kids who are going to go in this industry. Uh, what opportunity or platform are we leaving for them? Mm. And I didn't think we were doing a good job of that. And I think that's what our responsibility is. Mm. Anytime you have opportunity, it's always coupled with responsibility. So what will we do 
with the platform, the time, the opportunities that we have. Either I can continue to pursue the things that I love, which I've been blessed to be able to do, nothing wrong with that, or at some point for the next generation coming up, what am I offering? What will we leave behind? And if we don't do that, then I'm going to make that role very difficult for the students and the people who are coming behind me because I did not share any of the knowledge, any of the time. We didn't mentor. We didn't do anything. So now we're expecting them to go through what we mm. just went through without any help. And I just think we need to make the road a little less difficult for the people who come along beside us. So we changed everything. And our music group mentors young people through hands-on music production experiences. So we go right into schools. We bought all the lights. We bought all the sound. I bought all the cameras. <clears throat> we bought all the video equipment. We brought, I have a radio show on WICR. So they get into journalism. And so they're able to see in stations where they can, hey, you're a saxophone player, but have you ever thought about journalism? Have you ever thought about doing what you're doing right now? You know, doing a podcast. Have you ever thought about running lights? Have you ever thought about marketing? You're really good with art. Maybe you can do websites. Mm -hmm. Just broadening their scope of the music industry. And, and, and that's where I feel my love is going into this. And my, the important question is all of that stuff, that you're, all the equipment you're talking about, is that in a storage shed right now? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> Just, no, 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 no. Concern there. No. To make sure there weren't going to be disappointed students this week. No, 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 no. No. Okay. Um, curious with um, when dealing with student musicians, younger musicians, what's the divide? Are there more kids who believe that they know everything when they're 13 years old and playing music and I, you can't teach me anything, I know it? Or are there more who doubt their skills and potential? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Um, you have some that, you know, the confidence level at that age is like, I can tackle the world. Right. But then with social media and YouTube, <laughs> kind of brings that down a little bit because you can <laughs> see a guy in your bedroom over in Australia like, wow, he's really good, you know. So it kind of shapes, you know, dampens down the ego a little bit. Uh, but I, I find the confidence, um, social media kind of shows you one side of it. And so if you're not careful, everything we post on social media is the things that look good, right. our successes. Very rarely do we put our failures on social media. <laughs> so then a student or a young person who sees that then compares their life mm. to my story. Right. And so I try to go in and say, hey, <laughs> that's the end of the story. You're coming in at the end of the movie. Mm. You know, I'm 52 years old. So <laughs> you're, you know, going into college. You've got some time to kind of work on this mm. and, and, and develop and that's where I, I feel like the mentorship comes in to kind of figure out what are your interests, what are your talents, and let's figure out the why. If we can figure out why you're doing it, then we, you can determine if you're going to continue. Because if you don't have a why, then you'll go down any path. Any, any road will take you wherever you want to go if you don't have a why, you know, a goal. Let's sit down and talk about what we want to see in the next three to five years. You know, and if we can get them focused, you know, and then we can understand, hey, you have, you have the talent. All you need is time and cultivation. Right. You can do anything you want to do with time and cultivation. Somebody you know, listening at, um, to this podcast, we hope a few are, um, if they were to walk into a really well-stocked record store right now <laughs> with uh, you know, 50 bucks or 100 bucks, what would you tell them to buy to expand mm. their musical horizons? 
Are there any record stores left? <laughs> I think there are, there's one downstairs. Oh, Luna Records, Luna, right downstairs. CD and vinyl. Yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't been to a record store in years. Uh-huh. Uh, everything I have is on my phone. Okay. Uh, I have CDs. I have albums at home. All right. If somebody, I'll rephrase the question. If uh, somebody cooking dinner tomorrow were to ask Siri to play, oh, his right. Music. <laughs> Uh, if you want to be a jazz musician, I would say uh, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. That will kind of get you right in the ballpark of what uh, all the musicians are listening to. Uh, other stuff, I love Journey. Uh, you know, John Bonham. I, I mean, we could just go across the spectrum of music that I love. Alan Jackson. I'm, I'm just a fan of music. So if he called me tomorrow, I'd be packing my bags and I'd be going to play some country music. Okay, yeah. you know, because I, I love music. So, okay. uh, what's the last drum solo you've heard that made you go, "Damn"? Probably Blind Blade. You know, he was with uh, Chickaree and Christian McBride. He's just so musical. He's tasteful. He's dynamic, and he doesn't always approach the drum set like a typical timekeeper. Mm. It's uh, expression. It's like a soundtrack to me the way he approaches the drum kit. So I like things that are a little bit unconventional. Okay. You know, the speed and stuff I do like because it's impressive it's impressive and flashy. But the textures he pulls out of the drums and the ideas, mm-hmm. that is unique to his style of play. It always blows my mind when a guy like Neil, Neil Peart passes oh. on mm-hmm. and, and like all of these musicians from other formats, other right. genres come out of the woodwork and say, right. wow, he was really good. Right. And as a nerd, I'm like, this makes me feel better about, you know, liking this band for all these years. <laughs> Rush was a great band. They were amazing. They and were it's a certain trio, you know, and you don't see many bands last the test of time. Like mm-hmm. that. that was a real band. Yep. Well, what do you think, the str- that we, again, that's something we talked about earlier in the show about those kind of relationships. What, is it a good thing automatically for a band to stick together for too long or, or for long period? Or is, is there a too long? And, you know, what sort of the... Uh, what inspires and what benefits are there to having new blood versus being with people who you know and build that long relationship with? What are sort of pros and cons there? I think it's like a marriage. It's unique to you know how how much you want to develop and grow. Are, are we all going in the same direction? You know, uh, when you start a marriage or a band, you're in one set of you're in a mentality. But then as you grow older, are we growing together? Are we growing apart? So with a band, it's the same thing, you know. We may start and we have, you know, we're going to take over the world, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we get out there and we take these tours, but then you get out there and you realize, man, I can't really build a family because mm-hmm. I'm on the road. So that may, a band member may leave for that. Mm-hmm. You know, you may bring somebody else in, you know, but any person you bring in changes the chemistry, the dynamic, you know, of the whole thing. So I always fashion it to a marriage, you know. Mm-hmm. How do some marriages last and how do some don't? I don't have the questions or the answers to all of that. I think it, it depends on the individuals. Where are we trying to go? And a lot of times in marriage and in bands, we don't have goals. Mm-hmm. We're going to get married, we're going to have some kids, and we're going to get a house, <laughs> and, and, and then that's it. It's like, well, you know, beyond that, what do you want out of life? What do I want out of life? And do those things align? Are, are we on the same track? Even though we may not do the same thing, do we support each other? Or, you know, how does that work? Because 
music and, and, and is selfish in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It's about me. I got to keep practicing. I got to keep getting better. I got to spend more time at it. We got to do another tour. We got to do another record. And it's me, 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 me. I want a number one. I, I want to get on the Grammys. It's just, <laughs> it all, it, it, it never stops. Beth, I hear you calling. <laughs> I can't come home right now. <laughs> So, you know, it's like it's like, like a marriage. You know, where are you at right now? You know, you've done that show how many times? You know, every Sunday, you know, it's just I, I would hear that with my wife. You know, it's like all you do is practice. You're good enough now. You're traveling. You're, it's like, I, 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 you know, I went out there on this tour and I heard such and such and he's amazing. Mm-hmm. I got to go and work on. Mm-hmm. But, but I think it's all about balance. I think it's, it's give and take and it's balance. You know, and you have to learn how to do that. And that's the hardest thing. That's what life is all about, is creating balance. Where can folks hear you soon or in the near future? Uh, I didn't bring my calendar. That's also in my... (laughs) (laughs) Where can folks find out your checker calendar? (laughs) Well, you can go to ourmusicgroup.com. We have shows and stuff that we do there. Uh, Actually, next... Thursday, I will be at the University of Indianapolis for a concert at mm. uh, 7 o'clock uh, called The Phelps Connection. So my wife, myself, my son, oh. uh, and a few other of our colleagues will be playing there. Uh-huh. Um, well, let's, let's step back from that for a second. At what point does does the son get an instrument? At what? How did that? Well, Dorian, he's a great musician, and uh, I didn't think he was going to actually pursue it. He could mm-hmm. always play, but I was a little nervous about trying to force it on him. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, if he wants to get into this, I want him to be something he has passion for mm-hmm. or will constantly be trying to feed him. And, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you got to do this. You got to go practice. If you don't have that, this is probably not the industry you want to get in because you have to be self-motivated. Right. Uh, and finally, he just started really taking to it. And he started playing out. He plays at several churches, but he started playing with uh, the Tucker Brothers and mm-hmm. Rob Dixon mm-hmm. and, Stacy McCracken, and all of a sudden now he's playing with Josh Kaufman. Wow. And uh, so he actually does it for a living. He comes over every morning. He practices mm-hmm. four or five hours. I had to yell at him a couple of times just to be consistent. Wait, wait and yell at Kaufman. It's not whiplash yelling, right? No, 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 no. no. Okay. We've watched that movie several times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little brutal. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just want him to be consistent. Whatever we do, we need to be consistent. Put it on a calendar. Put it on a schedule. You know, you, you can't say I'm going to be a professional in anything and sporadically do it. Today I do it at 9, tomorrow it could be noon. It's like we're going to commit. So then you're going to have the room, the studio, from this time on. After this, then I have it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just creating some structure. Because if not musicians, you know, we, we play late. And if you're not careful, we're getting up at 11, 12. We're going to start today at 3. The rest of the work day is shutting down. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. going to go home from work. And I'm talking about, hey, let's tackle the world. It's like, well, the day's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, so we need to, I want him to treat it like a business. And just to solidify the image, because we haven't discussed age, this is a very different picture if he's 3 years old or if he's 25. How old is your son? He is 25. 25. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just want to help Get you out there and do it. <laughs> well, I know with all of most of your equipment uh, and your kit locked away, do you want to still uh, create some music for us? Yeah, we can do that. Let's do, do that. that. I brought some my shakers, but he had some interesting things in the box. Go for it. It's all so yours, man. Try to create a soundtrack here. Please welcome the music of Kenny Phelps. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm just gonna be going out of the box and grabbing whatever happens. Right on. <laughs> That's going to wrap up another episode yeah. of the Lou Harry Gets Real podcast. I'd like to thank producer Patrick Chastain and audio engineer Miles Hall. Big thanks to the management and staff of our sponsor, The Aristocrat. And of course, to Ed Wank, Evan Dosey, Kenny Phelps. Thanks also go out to the verbally abused kid in Whiplash, Animal from The Muppet Show, and Pete Best, of course. Thanks to my middle school music teacher, Betty King, who really, really tried. Uh, thanks for anyone who ever worked at the Hunt's chain of movie theaters in South Jersey, and for the dozens of ushers who have turned their heads when I've snuck from one movie to another in a multiplex. 
thanks to Amy Wank because she's Amy Wank. And of course, thank you to all the listeners to the podcast here and there. Thank you. Keep an open heart and an open mind. We'll see you again.